Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this is the final episode of Behold for 2021. Mm-hmm. So much like last week, uh, we won't be talking about TV anymore. We'll be talking about the best films of the year. Um, not the entire year though, we'll be primarily focusing on the second half of 2021. And that's because if you're you know, a long-time listener of Behold, you may have already noticed that around June and July period, uh, we already covered the best films of the first half of 2021. Oh, yeah. So we figured we won't retread any of that. Uh, let's move on to the last six months of the year where we'll be uh, drawing upon our pool uh, and focusing upon the four best films from the last six months that we've seen. Not only that, you know, um, tune in till after our discussion because we'll be then breaking down our top 10 films overall mm-hmm. for 2021. So can't wait to get into all of that. Um, this is what we have in line for you. This is what we think is the best from the second half of 2021. Yeah. We'll be discussing two incredible, beautiful Ryusuke Hamaguchi character studies. Uh, firstly, in Drive My Car, and secondly, in Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Alongside the return of Jane Campion to cinema after a 12-year hiatus with her Western psychodrama, The Power of the Dog, available now on Netflix, and finally, we'll be delving into Questlove's music documentary about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival mm. available right now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, right at the end, we'll be talking about our top 10 uh, films overall, which will be divided evenly. Five for me, five for Isa. Um, of the four films that we picked here to spotlight, I'm assuming you have the same inclinations as I am. Drive yep. My Car is, is your number one, right? Oh yeah, hands down. Hands down oh, within these four, like it's it's everything here is amazing, but yep. Drive My Car is hands down top pick from this four. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, with that in mind, we're unanimous uh in our decision. Let's begin with our number one, number one film from the last six months, Japan's Drive My Car. Um, it follows Yusuke Kafuku, who is a stage thespian slash director. Uh, he is happily married to a TV screenwriter named Oto. Um, however, one day, Oto suddenly dies of a brain hemorrhage just mm-hmm. after Kafuku discovers her infidelities. Um, still unable to fully cope with the loss even after two years, yep. Kafuku distracts himself with an offer to direct a play at a Hiroshima theatre festival. This is where he meets Misaki, who is a reticent woman assigned as his chauffeur. As they spend time together in the car, Kafuku is kind of forced to confront both his undying love and bitter resentment towards his wife, mm-hmm. both through the theater piece that he's producing and through the conversations that he has with the taciturn Misaki, who is herself hiding her own wellspring of trauma. Um, Drive My Car ends up being a graceful, aching film that stretches into an enchanting novelistic journey about mourning, about shared solitude, the nature of acting, and the ability to achieve emotional catharsis through art. Um, both of Ryusuke Hamaguchi's films that we're going to be talking about are languid, eye-opening, and keenly observed parables about ordinary human beings who are forced to reframe their sense of self. But in my opinion, Drive My Car is by a slight edge 
the superior of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on Drive My Car? Oh, man. Um uh... I, I remember sitting down for this, right? And you had already uh, you had already do done one viewing of Drive My Car while we were sitting in the cinema for this. Oh, uh, man. I you, did um, six yeah. hours of this. Yes. Worth to- it. I, totally worth it. Uh, I, I foresee myself like putting this on, on, on the list of those movies that I revisit every, every so often mm-hmm. um, just because of how good it is. And you were telling me to kind of t- keep a, an eye out for the when the title sequence kind of kicks in. Lo and yep. behold, 50 minutes later, uh, almost yeah. a minute, um, we transitioned into the title sequence and I was just blown away. I mean, you had already given me kind of a hits up about that. But even looking out for that, like the way in which it was done, the timing of it, the way that it, it, it kind of like inserted itself as a reminder, like, look, everything that you've been so immersed in for the last 15 minutes and you've been invested into is just the backstory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the real story kind of starts here. Um. It's a very simple, if bold, decision to to do something like that, especially when audience expectations are very much centered on having all of that kind of like upfront and at the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, clearly, Yuzuke um, Hamaguchi doesn't doesn't feel that it's necessary to to meet those expectations, but in fact, far supersede them with a very um, quick kind of quirky, uh, quirky tongue in cheek. Um, transition, you know, but mm. it, it is such a small attention to detail in terms of the timing and pacing and use of that transition to kind of set up your expectations for what you are going to watch for the remaining two hours-ish uh, of it. Uh, and I think that in and of itself, like, was one of the things that kind of blew me away on top of the great music, on top of the beautiful visuals, on top of the phenomenal acting, uh, and just like the f- really well paced and wide ranging emotional journey that is drive my car, I think it's been a long while since I've had this. I had a movie um, feed me and 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 evoke such a wide range of intense emotions in a single three hour sitting, uh, and like without a doubt, like it is so compelling and rewarding. Um, just to be a part of the audience and kind of like follow along the story. Yes, yes. Um, if I didn't mention it before, I think most of you should probably know that Drive My Car is actually based on a Haruki Murakami short story, mm-hmm. uh, which in itself is kind of this sleek, streamline <laughs> thing that yeah. is nonetheless like, you know, in the office signature style, kind of packs a lot into its lead sentences. It's, mm-hmm. you know, this uh, story about a grief-stricken marriage, um, and folded into a corrupted friendship study, and then related in turn via separate a separate tale of you know odd couple companionship, and it's all told in fewer than forty pages. Um, so on the face of it, I before going through the movie, before watching it for the first time, I yep. questioned the wisdom of turning such a precisely worked miniature yep. into a three-hour movie. But I think. The Japanese auteur here, Ryusuke Hamaguchi, mm-hmm. uh, who is deft and wise and his soft adaptation of Drive Marker never feels like an overextension of its delicate material. Instead, mm, no. it pursues a kind of cinematic stillness uh, to match Marukumi's um, plain, serene prose mm-hmm. uh, and takes things suitably slow. Um, this isn't, um, you know, like half of Dune crammed into two and a half hour movie. You know, This yeah. is a 40-page uh, story. <laughs> 
total over three hours. And I think this is the kind of film where, you know, where the opening credits, as you mentioned, arrive for 50 minutes in, um, as it ponders just how much, you know, time can heal all wounds. It's this subtly entrancing result. I think might be Hamaguchi's most um, emotionally nourishing film to date. Um, and it kind of joins uh, Lee Chang Dong's recent film, Burning, mm. um, atop the pantheon of big screen Murakami uh, interpretations. Yeah. Um, this is uh, the super size runtime is no obstacle at all. Oh, no. Uh, and, and Drive Micah's direct, misty eyed emotional impact uh, is incredible, you know. Yeah. Um, what were your highlights from the film of Drive Michael? What what were the things that stood out to you? Where be it the acting or the meta nature of the artistic process or, or anything like that? I think a lot of it, like the the draw, certainly is is this whole thematic exploration of how you can heal through art, right? Mm-hmm. And that resonated very kind of deep with me. In fact, after the day after we watched the movie, yep. I tried to get a hold of a copy of Uncle Vanya and then mm. realized that I'm I mean I'm not altogether familiar with Chekhov's body of work. Uh, and I thought, oh, you know what? I, like, the movie really kind of, like, portrayed it interestingly enough to want me to kind of, like, dive into that. Uh, I, I have not made a lot of progress just because Vanya is an extremely dense text. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of context that is required, right? Like, it's a rework of Chekhov's earlier work, etc., etc., you know? But I wanted to see if I could gleam some more insight to the kind of process like the specifics of how this play features heavily within drive my car mm-hmm. right and much like murakami's other stories right it's always you know linchpin on another work of art whether it's a painting whether it's a, it's a jazz record whether it's another kind of book uh, a photograph like he has he uses art a lot as plot devices in many of his stories uh, and it's so interesting to see how this plays out right um the familiarity with like um, the process of auditions and rehearsals and how um, different directors have different kinds of processes in order to elicit an emotion or a performance from an actor. Like all, These are all things that I have observed and been a part of uh, in, in points. Um, mm. And being seeing all of that like added to the experience, right? Because there is a familiarity there um, just in terms of its form. Uh, but the content of which is vastly different from my own experience. Uh, and on top of that, within a, what is essentially a very simple premise with a very complex uh, set of characters. Um, yeah. So like it, it feels extremely rewarding because you get the concept behind the movie. You get the premise. You get what the, where the story is going. Uh, mm. Its complexity never overwhelms you. Mm-hmm. Um, at any one point in time like there were mo- moments in time where you know I think a lot of it had to do with the conversations in the car where a single line is spoken and it hits you just how deep these characters go right mm. like it's not something that that is is you know kind of out of it in the open it's not something that's necessarily they beat you on your head or it's spoon fed to you uh, it's something that you've gleaned and that feels extremely rewarding when that mo- that epiphany pops up yep uh and for but at the same time right like it just it doesn't feel like work you know mm. like the 3 hours passes and you feel like you've gotten a complete experience and that is a very rare thing in this day and age for many 3 hour long movies right yep 
Uh, and for it to have come from a 40-page short story is kind of mind-blowing. You know, the yes. kind of... the Not density. I don't think density necessarily is the right word. But the fullness of what is portrayed here in, in Drive mm. My Car um, is, is satisfying. It feels like a meal, right? Like a total meal. It feels mm-hmm. unctuous. It feels, you know... Um, Oh man, uh, there's a Japanese word for it. Never mind, I can't think about it at the moment. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that it it you you walk away feeling like uh not a better person necessarily. You walk away feeling richer for having watched this movie, and that's not something that I've seen uh yeah. in a long time. Yeah. Yes, you know it. It's um extremely long, cold open. Its first act. Um, it kind of documents you know this this marriage right this marriage that is mm-hmm. um an intimate partnership that kind of nonetheless accommodates um unspoken unspoken infidelities on yep. the wife's part you know um especially then we find out you know since the death of their young daughter years before that's probably where the the cracks started to happen and then you know when otto dies in untimely fashion he used the case of retreats from life uh, and he retreats into his beloved car which is a comfort and a, a constant it's this red Sub nine hundred, you know that is um, uh, <laughs> that that looks very iconic. Uh, looks very unique. It's not like it's not like other cars. And I think drive yeah. my car understands the the cocooned space of a private vehicle where you can you know at once be moving through the world and mm-hmm. also kind of warmly isolated from it. Yeah. Um. For Yusuke, it's where he likes to run his lines. You know where he likes to memorize dialogue with only a cassette recording of the play as uh, his prompting partner. Um, so, you know, when he's invited to the Hiroshima Festival for the Uncle Varnia uh, adaptation, um, it's an extreme inconvenience for him uh, because mm-hmm. for uh, apparently insurance reasons, he, uh, <laughs> he, has to, he has to accept a chauffeur rather yep. than drive himself. So it almost starts out as like this rude invasion of his most private and his most creative space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the young Hyatt driver, Misaki, is herself introverted and soft-spoken and guards her, her personal history with a similar sorrowful wariness, uh, much like him. And But, you know, that is not a commonality in on which obvious friendships are built. I think neither yeah. party at first feels free to enjoy the silence, uh, mm-hmm. while the disembodied recordings of the Chekhov play you know, fills the space between them almost... Uh, almost feels ghostly uh, or in that context, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, outside the car and in the theater, like, fate or the story has further ways of yanking Yusuke from his show, you know. Um, one of the actors auditioning for his production is the handsome, um, callow, and I would say moderately t- talented uh, Tak Takatsuki, mm-hmm. uh, played by Masaki Okada. The I'm I'm talking about the actor in the movie who is moderately talented. The actor who plays him is really good. Yes. Um. <laughs> And and Yusuke recognizes him as yeah. his late wife's former lover. And when Yusuke confounds expectations by casting Takatsuki as Vanya mm-hmm. rather than taking the role himself, it's unclear if it's exacting some sort of tacit revenge on the oblivious younger man or somehow overlapping their identities, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think as Hamaguchi sort of irons out the details of Murakami's story, he folds in he folds in new ambiguities uh, along the way. Um, Mm-hmm. It's the car that remains the story's most intense uh, truth-telling space. Uh, I think Yusuke and Misaki gradually 
Um, and I think Hamaguchi's understanding of gradually is more gradual than most. <laughs> you know, um, they fall to each other. You know, using each other as a sounding board for pent up trauma and tragedy. Yeah. Uh, and Dry Marker is the most unusual sort of road movie in which the open road is you know a loop with the mm-hmm. same route traced on a daily basis, but somehow go, but somehow it, it liberates the passengers. Um, anyway, um, performance wise, uh, I think. Nishijima uh, is like unassumingly magnificent as you skip oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, via like very minute variations in expression and delivery. I think his virtually physicalized sadness uh, is a sh- <laughs> shift in temperature. You know, once he once he's sharing with Misaki, etc. You know, and yeah. I think the, the film charts this intricate ev- evolution against the bigger, bolder tonal progressions of the play rehearsals where the actors eventually reel against his preference for endlessly repeated, uninflected table reads. Mm-hmm. Um, no less superb is Miura, who, who's, you know, tense, gaze-dodging demeanor, yeah. uh, unfolds and relaxes once behind the wheel. Uh, even as Misaki herself tends to use words as a kind of um, brusque last resort. Mm-hmm. Um as their characters bend and bond, I think her melancholy comes to shape and steer the film just as much as his. Mm. Um, Hamaguchi's filmmaking, always accomplished, but reaches new heights here, I think, of refinement and sensory richness. Mm. Um, the camera, I think it marks like fine changes in light and air as the story progresses from, you know, kind of Tokyo's unyielding urban uh, environment to the muffling foliage and the pastel mists of the coastline that he moves to, mm-hmm. and eventually to like the sharp monochrome contrast of uh, Japan's um, snowy north, you know, all bound by the black ribbon of the road that remains Yusuke and Misaki's, you know, happy slash unhappy place. You know, mm. um, it's it's beautifully framed, wonderfully shot, and it lingers in a way that isn't indulgent. I think it uh it opens up a lot of the characters through micro-expressions and through your ability to sort of sit and look at them and yeah. try to understand what they're thinking. Uh, it's it's beautiful. Um, any closing thoughts on Drive My Car before you know we move on to uh, Hamaguchi's other great movie? Oh, man. <laughs> There's actually like so much to talk about, I think, for kind of Drive My Car. Absolutely. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. But I do, think, I do think specifically I want to point out um, the use of sound within the film. <clears throat> yeah, is vastly kind of like important. In specifically, um, Yusuke's recording of uh, Vanya that he uses to practice within car, which is like a main kind of like device to propel a lot of the conversations and a lot of the scenes within the car itself. You know, um, it's an it's a strange token of um, what I only came to realize later is a very big labor of love, right? Like recorded by his wife Otto. Um, Vanya is not an easy text to kind of get through. There are a lot of lines there. there is, um, there's a lot of things that you need to kind of like cover within that. On top of that, she has to give pause in order for him to practice his lines. But this fantastic kind of like haunting of him via this tape recording uh, mm. and her perpetual presence within the car itself underpins a, both a comfort to him and a discomfort uh, in 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 to whoever else is kind of like in the car. Uh, I think Misaki in particular, um, yep. that highlights just kind of the way that that like sound is used within the space, right? Um, you know, uh, and 
um, as you've already covered you, uh, with the way that the light is captured, with the way that the air looks and all of that, like the sound design is very intentional, right? At any kind of point in time, whether it's knowing the wind kind of like rushing through like this space between a, a power plant or, you know, they're by the sea or, you know, the crunch of the snow when they're kind of like trudging through that. And all of these things are incredibly calculated, but they feel intensely natural and add to the emotional weight of a given scene um, mm. was something that I noticed. Uh, also, like the casting of, oh man, what is her name? The Korean um the uh, deaf lady. The deaf lady, yeah, the deaf actor uh, actor. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed seeing her in those scenes, right? Like that's something I haven't seen a lot of. Um, but yeah, I really kind of like that having the space for her to speak um her truth within a very conversationally dominated film. Uh, yes. Yeah, I really, really like that. So there's a lot of like spaces for silence here. Mm-hmm. that is equally important to the story as any mm-hmm. other piece of conversation or dialogue um, mm-hmm. that we get from the characters. And uh, I, I love the way that that is a very subtle kind of like undercurrent that is so intentional and purposeful that you may not necessarily notice it first time around, uh, but so important as well. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the focus on silence and the focus on facial micro-expressions and on mm. very, like, brusque dialogue, you know. Um, Drive My Car sort of reminds me of one of my favorite films from last year. Uh, another unusual road trip movie uh, called uh, Never Really, Sometimes Always. Mm-hmm. Um, very different in theme, but oh, I yeah. think kind of similar in execution. Yeah. Yeah, the whole idea of capturing like an actual physical journey as part of a character's journey, like it's a tried and true kind of like device, right? Within yep. within writing and within art itself, um, it is fascinating to kind of see that regardless of how many times it's used, if it is put to good use and with good purpose, like how mm. impactful and a simple idea like that can be. Um, yeah, so powerful. I mean, like easily, easily, like this will make my all-time favorite films. Oh, sure. yes, definitely, you know. Um, my final thoughts are, you know, I think I love that Drive My Car. It kind of never explicitly tells us the reasons behind Yusuke's decisions, right? Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, Nishijima's stoic performance kind of offers mere glimpses of his um, depths of feeling. Mm-hmm. But um, in Hamaguchi's, like, meticulous fostering of relationships and near imperceptible layering of emotional revolution, yeah. um, Hamaguchi allows us to come to our own understandings of the reasons people in pain act the way they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's central to this mode of gradual emotional revelation, which is, of course, you know, what this film is all about. Um, I think in the end, uh, the, the effect of the movie kind of reveals how much um, our public-facing lives can be performative mm-hmm. or all driven by inner emotions, which yep. may also be their own performances. But I think in performing our roles and in stripping ourselves of effective displays of feeling, mm-hmm. Hamaguchi suggests that we can't fully get over the knots of our pain. Uh, perhaps we can find our way through them, through companionship or through um, friendship or kinship with someone else, uh, mm-hmm. like Misaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, an almost perfect movie in my opinion. Yeah. Easily. Like, I mean, it's it's hard to argue for 
a better film this year. But then mm-hmm. again, in our discussion, we will actually see if we can. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, drive my car easily. Like I think we could spend an entire Behold episode just kind of breaking down this movie. Uh, yep. But we've got other things to cover, so... Specifically, another Rizuki Hamaguchi film. <laughs> yes. The second on this list, uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. is an anthology movie, a collection of three beautiful short stories about the unexpected outcomes of otherwise mundane interactions. It, mm-hmm. ki- it kind of finds poetic depth in the subtleties of everyday exchanges. Uh, one is about a bizarre love triangle when uh, a woman discovers that her best friend is dating her ex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is the failed seduction of a college professor. Uh, the third is a case of mistaken identity at a school reunion. Uh, and this tree of tales follows three regret-filled women uh, often offer profound and empathetic looks on how desire, chance, and error kind of define us. Yeah. It is alternately thrilling, erotic, and heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this wonderful film could have easily been Japan's entry for next year's Oscars, if not for Drive My Car, because they can only pick one, right? Yeah, but uh, it is the same guy. <laughs> yeah, it's the same guy. Uh, what do you think of uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy? Um, great collection of stories. Um, but I do feel that, I think in general, my personal preferences always kind of lie with like a more complete and and a fuller story mm-hmm. uh, from all of that. Like, he, um, uh, uh, Hamaguchi's style is very clear. It's very obvious uh, in both kind of like these films. And I think for Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, it's uh, you get the same kind of quiet magic I think, mm-hmm. um, that we get in Drive My Car, but with a very kind of different lens and with like vastly kind of different stories uh, still. But there is a lot of moments of like amazing kind of dialogue that's captured there um, in these like moments of quiet and, and activity kind of interspersed in between that grants a compelling pacing, you know, that keeps your focus on that. I will say at the end of the uh, end of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I felt like I wanted more stories. I feel like this could have been an anthology series instead. Mm. Um, was kind of my main complaint for that. And some mm. stories I did feel were better told than others um, necessarily. Yeah. Um, yep. I also do think, like, I was a bit puzzled, I think, before I was watching this, why they chose Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And then I realized later on that it's a very liberal translation of the Japanese title, which mm-hmm. the literal translation translates to coincidence and imagination which I think it's far closer to the mm. thematic um, uh, portrayal of the stories that we have here yep. um, but yeah like very beautiful um, female-led uh, stories here that are strange and complicated and very unique in terms of the situations um like, they're very specific, right? Like, these yep. aren't, like, kind of, like, run-of-the-mill things um, that you... The, how how each story plays out. Like, the premise may be something that you say, oh, yeah, I've heard of something like that. Or maybe perhaps you have gone through something like that. But the way that it plays out, like, is incredibly unique and specific and very interesting in terms of... It's like, really? Okay. you All right, we're going there. And as it unfolds, you kind of, like, get a very... Um, this feels more magic realism than drive my car. I think mm-hmm. is the simplest way I can put it. 
Yes, yes. I think like, you know, it's it's basically this collection of short stories that are about coincidence and chance. Um yeah. as well as regret and, and adultery. And uh I think Ryusuke Hamaguchi, no matter how long his films are, has has a way of making whatever the runtime is, yeah. is feel very short, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's part part of it is the way his dialogue flows. I think characters kind of never shy from from speaking their minds or mm. holding a secret close to their hearts. Mm-hmm. And his anthology, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, is um, a remarkable exhibition and exploration of his talents in uh, different short stories. Um, they're not all as you know um, accomplished as Drive My Car is, but they're yep. all very good in their own right. And in each, there is a character who is playing pretend, or dreaming of a situation or life that is not their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we all know, you know, us being ordinary people, ordinary life is filled with mistakes and regrets. But Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy allots each of its central women a yeah. chance for change mm-hmm. uh, and a roulette wheel roll of the dice, you know, and gives them the opportunity to cut open their hearts and spill their contents to us, the audience, mm-hmm. uh, and to both strangers and past lovers. Um, Hamaguchi's characters have conversations that I feel like viewers wish they could have. The ones, you know, that get played <laughs> out in in front of a mirror that ca- that's kept locked away. You know, yeah, uh, it's like, it exists in our thoughts or our daydreams and uh, romantic spats and soliloquies are fueled with tension and words of devotion flow from the heart and they are desperate and brave. You know, um, they're all you know all these stories are equally crushing and memorable mm-hmm. uh, and. In each of these shots, themes of cheating emerge, and in each one, it's treated as matter of fact rather than villainous, mm-hmm. uh, an act that produces sadness, remorse, and grief. Um, it doesn't villainize any of its characters. It's yeah. profound in the way that Hamaguchi chooses not to criticize these characters. Uh, I think Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy in the end is overflowing with empathy, not too dissimilar from his other films. Uh, and has has a beautiful outlook on mistakes and the complex emotions that make up humanity, uh, and his tenderness towards each character that he mm. brings to life makes him, I think, one of the best storytellers working in the medium of cinema today. Oh, uh, yeah. What are your final thoughts on Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy? Um, do you have a favorite out of the three stories? Uh, the last one is my favorite. The last one is your favorite. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Weirdly uh, enough, the last one could have been in a genre equality episode because it takes place in an alternate reality mm, future. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some, there are some uh, sci-fi elements there, uh, yeah. which was very, very interesting. I, I just thought that the way that they decided to set the circumstances for which the story takes place, I found it strange as I was just kind of reading it off the screen. I was just like, really? Okay. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's a... It's, a, it's like a big break kind of between the first two stories, right? Uh, yep. To go in that direction. Um, but fairly fascinating. I wish they had explored that premise a bit more within the dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. but fa- fair enough, right? There's there's only so much runtime that you have for a particular story. Yeah, um, he, I think Hamaguchi was just straining to find a way to take social media out of the equation for the mistaken identity portion of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel that it could have been easily done if he had just decided to make this a period piece like set in the 90s rather than um, mm. an alternate future. Uh, yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, that would have been simpler, I think. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I. I'm. I'm kind of undecided. I do think that probably the second one is my favorite, mm. just for some incredibly like tense 
is tense the right word? I guess so. Like the t- t- tense scenes within that. Uh, yep. But it is also it also feels like the most coincidental and absurd of the three, mm. uh, because too many things need to f- too many coincidences need to happen in order for the story to turn out like it did. Um, that's my main complaint about the second one. But yeah, some of the scenes fantastic, like palpable tension, uh, yeah. all true, fantastic stuff. Yes, yes, uh, agreed, man. Um, yeah. Um, in the end, I think Drive My Car is is the better film by. Yes. By, by a small margin, but mm-hmm. you should definitely go out of your way to watch both of these. Uh, both of these films are actually available at the projector right now. So mm-hmm. go ahead to the projector and catch it if you're in Singapore. Or if you're living overseas, um, I guess find it on VOD. Uh, it's, it's definitely available. Both are available on VOD right now, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so go check it out. Um, if you live in Singapore, please go give projector your money because not many... Um, cinemas in Singapore are, are willing to bring films like this here. Oh, yeah. um, the Asian Film Archive is, is uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is also showing there. So go give them your money, man. Uh, next up, let's move on to a streaming uh, option. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is called The Power of the Dog. It's available on Netflix. Uh, and Jane Campion, uh, the famed director of The Piano, uh, returns with this masterfully tense, psychologically complex and beautifully poetic Western family drama. Mm-hmm. It is set on a booming Montana ranch in 1925, and Benedict Cumberbatch stars as a coarse and rugged ranch- rancher Phil Burbank. Uh, when his ruminative, soft-spoken brother George, played by Jesse Plemons, uh, brings home a new wife and her son, uh, Phil revels in tormenting and mocking them. Um, eventually, though, Phil appears to take a liking to the boy. He takes him under his wing. Is this a gesture of Phil, Phil's you know, softening heart? Or is this just another one of his cruel ploys? Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, when it comes together, this is an exquisitely crafted film with unhurried rhythms that continually shift as you know, um, notes of melancholy and solitude and jealousy and resentment surface. You know, this is a film about toxic masculinity in the old west mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know it's rare to see films like that and I think it features great performances from uh, Benedict Cumberbatch perhaps his best performance ever uh, alongside yet another uh, reunion between uh, Jesse Plemons <laughs> and Kristen Dunst yep. uh, who you may remember also played um, a really fucked up husband and wife in Fargo season 2 mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about The Power of the Dog? Oh man the, uh, the performances here are like insane Insane. Like mm. Cumberbatch is having a mean streak at the moment. I mean, outside of Doctor the Doctor Strange stuff that he's doing, which is still good, but in a different way. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do feel like his performance here is easily one of the best that he's done in his career. But I do want to highlight that Dunst does a really, really good job, and Plemons continues to be one of those actors that you can't quite remember their name, but you always remember their performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah, like severely, severely underrated stuff. Um, I'm gonna say that power, the power of the dog, is not a film for everyone. Mm. Uh, like it is glacial in spaces, right? Mm-hmm. But it is in- intensely beautiful. I I think like the cinematography paired together with the soundtrack just makes for a very immersive kind of look and feel. Uh. Of, of of what the the wild west i guess um feels and looks like and sounds like um but it is slow uh mm-hmm. and you have to be comfortable with that kind of movie in general there is a lot of scenery chewing 
but every time there is action or point of conflict, it is incredibly intense. And and you have like these long moments again, right? Of kind of like the riding out back or, you know, being within nature and all of that counterposed with just like humans being shitty, uh, essentially. Um, yep. Overall, I did enjoy it. I really enjoyed the performances all around. Um, but I do feel that the third act felt underwhelming for some reason. Like, mm-hmm. the twist and all of that phenom. Like, I caught me off guard. I was like, oh yeah, that, that, that I didn't see that coming. Solid stuff. But for some reason, the way that it wrapped up didn't feel substantial enough to have that cathartic release that you tend to look for in in stories like this, right? Without mm. without necessarily spoiling uh, what's going on. You know? Yes. Um, I don't know. Do you feel the same way about that? Because I, I do think it's a fairly divisive thing. Like, Power of the Dog is one of the most well-reviewed films this year. Mm. Uh, but some rank it higher than others specifically because of the, the third act. Yeah, yeah. I do say it, like, falters a bit in its last 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh but I did like the thematic beauty or the poetry in the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Like I saw the what it was what it was going for, like, and I, I gave it a pass on okay. the execution of it. Yeah. Uh, but its first two hours is where the film really gripped me. It is mm. one of the tensest films that I've ever seen, just in terms of the intimidation factor of a <laughs> um, Cumberbatch character. Like, you, yeah. you never quite know what, what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an, an unusual film for Jane Campion to make her, her film return to. You know, oh, yeah. It's very bold and idiosyncratic and unpredictable and alive with psychological complexity, mm-hmm. which is common for Jane Campion. But yeah. for a filmmaker who has predominantly focused on the investigations of the female psyche. Yeah. Um, this, you know, is also an adaptation of a, a book that is by uh, Thomas Savage, the book. Uh, it's a 1967 novel, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think it allows Jane Campion to shift her themes to corrosive masculinity instead, uh, alongside repressed sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think she manages to, crum- to craft a very intimately comfortable, uh, in- intimately uncomfortable family drama yeah. A, a chamber piece on an epic, beautiful uh, canvas uh, in the Montana mountains. And, you know, it's driven by transfixing performances. I mentioned the big three stars, Benedict Cumberbatch, Kristen Dunst, and Jesse Plemons. Uh, it could be argued that the best performance in the film, though, is by a breakout young Australian actor oh, named yeah. Cody, Cody Smith-McPhee, who, is, who could be arguably the, the lead character in the film, if, if you think about it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, all of them are all of them are great. All of them make a, a great um, ensemble. Yeah. Uh, Cam- Campion, I think, is has always been an expressive visual filmmaker, uh, and she gets a lot of, of cinematography here. I think the beauty of the landscape. Uh, it's shot both in New Zealand, South Islands, alongside uh, you know the the Montana Mountains. I think she manages to capture the the beauty and the harshness of the, of a West uh, very ably and very deftly. Mm-hmm. Uh, all in all, I think this was one of the most unusual westerns I've I've ever seen. It's oh, almost yeah. um, similar to the assassination of Jesse James in that it is mm-hmm. glacial mm-hmm. and nothing much happens and not for traditional western fans. 
yeah. and not for the casual moviegoers either, but it is that very glacial pacing and the lyrical cinematography and the coarse vernacular and the, this thematic portrayal of, you know, rugged manhood in the land, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, coating himself in mud and stuff like that and swimming <laughs> naked and in a secluded river retreat and stuff like that. Um, and that contrast with the more gentlemanly aspects of civilization, of art, uh, what George wants to be versus what Phil wants to be, uh, what the kid wants to be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Kristen Dunn sort of like stuck in between it all. Uh, it's probably one of the best family dramas I've seen this year. Mm. Uh, I'm, I picked The Power of the Dog because for me, this is... Last year, I, I, this is kind of, it's like a tradition for me. I always yeah. pick like one family drama that that usually would not... People wouldn't really pay attention to. And last year was The Nest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and this year was uh, family, uh, The Power of the Dog. Mm, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. As far as family drama goes this year, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It is... It is a like it remains on your mind, right? For yeah. sure. Um, I, I do feel like there's a lot of a lot of things to kind of unpack after you're done watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I am, I only caught this a couple of days ago, so it's still fresh on the mind. Yeah. Um, um, what are your final thoughts before we move on to the documentary? Oh man, like it is. It is certainly one of the most unique westerns I have seen, as you have said, mm. uh, for sure. I am still puzzling over it. Like, I can see a lot of, like, immediate... um, There are a lot of, like, immediate kind of great things. The performances, the cinematography, uh, Johnny Greenwood's score, right? Mm -hmm. All of that, like, a massive kind of takes of that. There is a niggling... There's a niggling kind of feeling at the back of my mind that I am missing what a lot of people are hailing as the greatness of this film. Uh, mm. is kind of me. And I don't know if it's because maybe for a particular portion I wasn't paying attention and I missed it or, you know, it just didn't hit the same way for me. Uh, but, like, it is, you cannot take away from the fact that this is a great film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just not sure if it's as great as many people are saying it is. Yeah. Yes. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, definitely agreed. Uh, I do want to give my final thoughts to Johnny Greenwood as well. Mm. I think the mounting dread that I experienced in this film is quite enhanced by his, you know, strings. You know, Johnny Greenwood's atmospheric score here yeah. is right up there with uh, There Will Be Blood. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think it seems to set the story on uh, this inevitable trajectory towards sorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, like, once again, like, he gets overshadowed by the three big stars, but Cody Spade McPhee's layered characterization and yeah. performance mm-hmm. reveals intriguing surprises. It's the actor's edgy scenes with Cumberbatch oh, that yeah. are the movie's most nuanced, mm-hmm. and the queer undercurrents that ripple throughout the drama are most acutely felt by these two characters, mm-hmm. and it's what drives them towards its taut uh, final chapters. I think you can clearly sense that something terrible is destined to happen and it's that tension yeah. that kept me on the edge of my seat in uh, what I think is an exquisitely crafted film and quite unhurried. Unhari- but yes, you're right. It is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to our final film that we'll be talking about. It's called Summer of Soul. Or when the revolution could not be televised. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a documentary about the 1969 uh, Harlem Cultural Festival uh, that reveals a musical moment and a black revolution 
in full flower. Uh, in Summer of Soul, uh, which I actually incidentally caught on Sundance earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, we we get to witness one of the most pivotal moments in black culture and black music history that just never got the shine it did, despite the fact that it had over 300,000 attendees. Yeah. It took place the same year as uh, Woodstock, you know, and this is often hailed as the black Woodstock. And despite, worst of all, it's insane lineup. Um, This festival has one of the most crazy lineups of blues, gospel, rock, and soul artists to have ever shared a stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is crackling to watch. Um, Questlove essentially found a treasure trove. Um, It's amazing that some also has never been turned into a concert film. All all the footage was there. No one has just ever used it. Uh, And Questlove has done it. He, He has put together not just a concert film, but also captures the mood and the vibe, uh, the culture and the politics of the event, mm-hmm. uh, and all of that kind of marries into what makes Summer of Soul uh, such an astounding watch. Uh, what do you think of Summer of Soul? Summer of Soul is a potent shot of the joy of being at a festival. That's yeah. what it feels like, right? Um, there's something about the way that, I mean, Questlove, uh, is, is there anything that Questlove touches that doesn't turn to gold? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, because the kind of first outing as a as a, a documentary director here, right, feels amazing to watch, right, along the way. Uh, there's this incredible balance between, like, um, the music sequences and the footage from the concert itself spliced with, you know, um, informa- uh, voiceover information about, you know, what people, the interviews they were doing, what people were wearing, what people were eating, you know, what the yeah. general vibe of the thing is and, and all of that. Like, there is enough of everything within that to create an incredibly well-fleshed-out story. It is it is very easy to feel as though that you are there in, in this particular place. While mm-hmm. at the same time talking about the importance of the festival itself um, and the context in which that it took place and why that, that matters, you know. Uh, yeah, like, oh my God. Like, if, if you were to have to pay pay for tickets for a lineup like this today, it mm. would be through the roof. Very, very honestly. Like, and this was absolutely free to whoever who wanted to attend it. It's kind mm-hmm. of mind-blowing. Um, in a day and age where we, you know, a lot of the world right now still can't go to music festivals and stuff like that. Uh, yep. But to have it at such a very pivotal moment in world and pop culture history, right? Like, yeah. summer of 69, like, so many things were happening at the same time mm-hmm. uh, during that period of time. Woodstock, as you've mentioned before. Um, I had not heard of this. I had no idea about this until I watched it, mm-hmm. or at least um, I had no idea about this until it was announced, right? And I did some research later on. Yeah. Um, but how could... Why was this left sitting somewhere for 50 years? You know, just forgot, just forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it seems so strange given the fond memories of the many interviewees, uh, whether they be the musician on the stage or the the people, uh, part of the organization of just kind of like attendees as well. Mm-hmm. That it never, like, no one like asked where's the footage for this, you know, yeah, or or why hasn't that been more talk about it. Right. And to be fair, like the late 60s going into like early 70s in the US weren't necessarily the greatest time, maybe, for the, these things to kind of come out. 
yep. and they were contending with a lot of other stuff. Um, but still, like that was the general kind of feeling as I was watching this. Like, this is fucking amazing. Like, why is it we're only getting this in 2021? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, such a fun ride, such a a, a jubilant, exhilarating um, celebration uh, of 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 kind of like hope and community. And all of that so neatly condensed into a relatively short, like I think it's just over an hour ish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all and and it's got everything, right? It's got culture, it's got history, it's got you know, it educates you. Um, it's got amazing music by some of the greatest artists of that era and of all time. Yeah. Um, like it's it's my easily the top documentary I've watched this year, for sure. Agreed, agreed. You know, um, this weeks-long celebration of soul and Motown and blues and gospel where nearly like 300,000 people gathered and Stevie Wonder played and mm-hmm. Mavis Staples and Nino Simone and a host of other equally big black artists at the time. Yeah, It's just a shame that something like this was forgotten in the annals of music history when people are making documentaries about the Fire Festival oh, or yeah. about Woodstock 99 when a bunch of Limbiscuit fans went around raping people. You know, why is that getting attention and this is not, you know? Um, this was a nexus around, around which so many facets of black life at the time would intersect. Mm-hmm. You know, from the Afrocentrism of the Black Panthers, who actually provided security for the event, yeah. to the renewed repl- reclaiming of the word black to identify themselves in print and in person. The music was transcendent, but what the f- festival meant to the citizens of Harlem at the time and to the black community in America in general gave it so much more meaning than its obscured black Woodstock reputation would have you believe. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's also remarkable to consider that Summer of Soul is the directorial debut of the Roots frontman Questlove. You know, mm-hmm. um, if not for the fact that he feels like the exact right person with the knowledge and passion to tell the story. Yeah, you know, um, there's something incredible about the first-time filmmakers' command of structure and message here, which elevates mm-hmm. Summer of Soul beyond you know the rote, typical celebratory music doc into an almost ethnographic text of the many concerns and struggles of black people yeah. uh, that they were going through at the time and in that space. You know, the Vietnam War was still raging. The Civil Rights Act was just a few years old. Desegregation was still in the middle. Of, in, in the middle, it was in progress. Yeah. Uh, the black community was reeling from the successive deaths of JFK, Malcolm X, doc, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. At the same time, Harlem was struggling with drugs and crime and more with America more concerned with putting, you know, um, as the song says, uh, Whitey on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Apollo 11 landing happened during the festival as this documentary covers. Uh, and it addresses the concerns of the poor black and brown uh, people in the audience and in that community. For so many people, I think the Harlem Cultural Festival was a balm and a means of escape and a, a gathering place for black solidarity and pride and this was at the time that black people started to awaken Mm -hmm. to a new revolutionary consciousness uh and they rode it off you know this wave of fist pumping hip swaying incredibly soulful music uh and while the festival is rightly the focus and it's captured with some gorgeously restored like 16 millimeter footage uh, that amazingly hasn't seen the light of day for 50 years Mm -hmm. i think questlove's approach uh, shows us both the show-stopping for, for performances and annotates it 
with broader cultural context of the individuals, the artists, and the culture at the time. Uh, and so, like, when we're listening to, like, Miss Mahalia Jackson or maybe Staples, we also learn about the history of church rituals as, you know, some of the earliest times that Black people felt free to express themselves mm-hmm. was in the church and that importance still holds. And mm-hmm. then we move on to, like, Motown legends like Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, and we peek behind the curtain at the community history of Motown Records, the Afrocentrism movement. Um, Gladys Knight shows up to reflect on those experiences as well. Mm-hmm. I think like Questlove leaves no stone unturned. Yep. He has like this almost detective-like zeal to point out every way that this festival intersected with black life at the time. And that's what elevates some of so beyond the typical concert documentary. That's what makes it more special. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite performance from the documentary? Uh, wow, this is hard <laughs> to pick. Probably Nina Simone because yeah. you know it. It is Nina Simone, but you can pick any any one of them. And, yeah, you know. yeah. I I was just kind of puzzling over this. I I've I, I've been checking out like um the playlist on Spotify and just like going through that. Um, yeah, but it's hard, man. It really, really is. I I will say that one of the standouts that that uh, stand out in my mind for me is the Sly and the Family Stone portion. Yeah, where they yeah. Sly and the Family Stone, like just like you know, uh, having done like the interview with the attendees and all of that, and just having this, oh, what was it? Two toned. Two toned is the word that they used. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like super interesting. In addition to the fact, um, you know, of like everything else that's going on, there was a special moment. Uh, in particular for that performance, um, stands out for me. Yes. Um, amazingly enough, if Questlove had just done the lazy thing and just built a straightforward concert documentary, yeah. this would already have been one of the best documentaries of Easily. the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he didn't need to add the cultural and political context to it, but he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what you know elevated it. Uh. But it would, uh, let me tell you, just the performances themselves, if he had just like copied and pasted and like stitched <laughs> together, yeah. it would already have been great. You know, um, but what is great is the context behind it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah that, that's why Sam also was one of the best documentaries of the year. Uh, any final thoughts before we move on to our top 10 of the year? No, I think that that pretty much wraps it up for Summer of Soul. Like, highly, highly recommend if you enjoy any of that, right? Please watch Summer of Soul. It's on Disney+. Mm-hmm. Plus. Um, for most regions, um, you have no reason not to watch it. It's, it's an amazing ride and a piece of history that has been hidden for so long that it deserves to get as many eyes on it as possible. Yes, uh, if you're an American listener, uh, it's available on Hulu. If you're anywhere else in the world, it's available on Disney Plus, as we mentioned. Uh, let's get down to our top ten movies of the year overall. Mm, not not go. just the last six months, but the full year. Uh, a bit of a side note here: I do have to say that me and Isa's lists probably would have uh, <laughs> a lot of overlap, yeah. but I decided to give Isa free reign, and whatever he picked, I didn't pick. Yeah. In the in the interest of not, you know, covering the same stone twice. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. We had to deconflict, uh, otherwise we would just be hopping on kind of the same thing. Absolutely. And I also made a decision not to pick any of the four titles that we've already mentioned. Mm. Uh so this are my this is my top five minus what Isa picked and yes. minus what I've already talked about. Yes. Uh but let's begin with Isa first. What is your number five? My five, as we've just talked, is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is my anthology film of the year. 
anthology. Yeah, yeah. Very rare to have an anthology film. Exactly. So this definitely takes the place uh, for it there. Like, I, I just wanted more, right? Like, it, it had the right feel to it. It had, like, interesting stories and all of that. It is unique in the films that have been released this year being a fantastic anthology film of which I don't think... Are there any competition? I, I'm not sure. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But this was, I think, definitely the most tentative spot for me. There were a number of notable mentions that it could have bumped it. Uh, it could have been recency bias for sure. And I wasn't restricted by the fact that I couldn't pick stuff that we've just talked about in this particular episode. So I went with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Absolutely. Uh, my number five is something we talked about on a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Behold, one of the one of my best films from the first half of the year. It carries on through to the second half. Oh yeah. My number five is Collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander Nanau's riveting portrait of political corruption uh, mm-hmm. and corruption in general in Romania's healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the best journalism documentaries you will ever see from any year. Uh, it follows the aftermath of the 2015 fire that killed 64 people in a Bucharest nightclub. Mm-hmm. the mysterious death of a pharmaceutical city CEO yeah. and the resignation resignation of a health minister all seemingly unrelated events until an intrepid team of sports reporters digs to expose a massive scandal and cover up collective plays like a propulsive real time investigative thriller it explores the fallout of the tragedy mm-hmm. and the courage of those tirelessly working to uncover the truth and amazingly enough, they just happens to be sports editors. Uh, <laughs> amazing. Uh, you, you can find this on VOD or if you live in America uh, on Hulu. Uh, what is your number four? My number four was a toss-up between two films, but I eventually uh, went with another round, which we've also covered in a yep. different Beho episode. So a, another round is a black comedy drama um, out of um, Denmark, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right, or rather, it's a collaboration between like some of the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, uh, Holland, Sweden, uh, starring Matt Mikkelsen. Uh, we've covered it before. I won't go too much into details there. Essentially, it's this amazing kind of like uh, experiment uh, about how day drinking and keeping your blood level at, I can't remember what the exact number is, uh, how that 0.05 work. or something? Yeah, yes, 0.05. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and how that might possibly kind of change your life and uh, uh, this group of friends and the pact that they've made and how they ch- kind of changes their lives all around. Fantastic performances, uh, in particular by Matt Mikkelsen. Uh, fantastic kind of ending sequence as well with like a wholly euphoric kind of frenzied uh, dance sequence, which I don't think we've had any similar comparison in for for the year. Mm. Um but yeah, it was either this or Minari for me, I think, for this spot. Yes, uh agreed, agreed. Uh my number four is a film from Denmark slash Afghanistan called Flea. Mm. Um it is similar to Persepolis in that it is a personal memoir that is animated. Mm. Um, and not just animated, it, it blurs the traditional doc- boundaries of documentary yep. by mixing in archival footage, mixed graphic design, and animation. Um, Flea, if you don't know, it follows the true story of a man called uh, Amin Nawabi who is grappling with the painful secret that he has kept hidden for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this secret that threatens to derail the life that he has built for himself and his soon-to-be husband. So he decides to recount his story through animation to the director, Jonas Poher Rasmussen. Mm -hmm. So Amin tells the story of his extraordinary journey as a child refugee from Afghanistan to becoming an illegal immigrant in Russia for a couple of years to trying to escape in in a a cargo container ship uh, 
ending up in a detention facility in Estonia, being sent back to Russia, and then uh, smuggling, uh, smuggling himself across the border to Denmark, uh, where he now finds, uh, where he's now home, like, and where he's uh, found asylum there. I think Flea is a remarkably humanizing and complex film. Yep. It crafts a probing and powerful memoir that explores not just the lingering psychic damage of war, but the lingering psychic damage of displacement. Uh, yeah, this, uh, rather than some of so, is, in my opinion, the best documentary of the year. Mm. Although I'm not sure whether to call it a documentary because it's animated, I think it can be called a documentary. Yeah, right? I guess so. I think it's more like what is being explored rather than the medium necessarily. Yeah, non-fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. What is uh, your number three? My third pick, and I think this might be my most controversial pick for me personally, is Dune. Mm. Um, just because, I mean, we've, we've waxed lyrical about Dune. Uh, we're both fans. Uh, I'm a huge fanboy. Uh, I just think that in terms of what we wanted to do for this list, in, in terms of like uh, geeky, in terms of geek stuff, like Dune is definitely my top pick for geek stuff movie this year. Oh, that's quite uh, easy. Yeah. yeah like, yeah, and it, it's very, very easy, but I wanted to make sure that I had a spot for that uh, that reflected, um, you know, it's standing within that, but those particular genres. Uh, but as well as, yeah, I just thought it wasn't a perfect movie, but it was well made. Uh, if you have, if you go in fresh, it's not bad. If you go in knowing, like, it's pretty fucking good. Um, so, yeah, Dune is my number three pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I just finished actually crafting my top forty films of the year. Uh, Dune unfortunately did not make the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my highest geek pick is Titan, which won the Cannes Film Festival this year. Ooh. But uh, that is not my number three. Yeah. Uh, my number three is Shiva Baby again, mm-hmm. another film that we've already talked about. Yeah. Uh, again from a first time filmmaker, the feature directorial debut of writer director Emma Seligman. Mm-hmm. Uh, is an absolutely funny comedy about a snarky bisexual named Danielle. Who, <laughs> Um, runs into her sugar daddy at a Jewish funeral attended by her family and her ex-girlfriend. Uh, Shiva Baby is a, whiffy, is a witty and piffy affair. Uh, it makes good use of its claustrophobic single setting yep. for some highly uncomfortable horror and humor and well-choreographed suspense. Uh, I think Seligman tightly orchestrates this sarcastic and lively film with a loving cultural specificity mm-hmm. and nuance and she works with satirical muscles to elevate every escalating complication that Daniel finds. Yeah. This, in my, home, my opinion, the best horror movie of 2021. Oh my god. I, I think it might be the most anxiety-inducing film this year. Since and we have a lot. It. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot on this list, but like Shiva Baby might still take the, take the cake. Yes. Uh, for my personal like fears, you know, of you know, like gatherings <laughs> and stuff, yeah, this, is, this definitely takes the cake. Yeah. Uh, what is your number? We had number two, right? Yes. yes. What's your number two? Okay, so my number two is Drive My Car. Okay. One of the best films of the year, hands down, but it's not my number one. Uh, mm-hmm. And I went through like, oh man, I was, I, I think I might have lost some sleep like deciding what should take top place. And it's mm. a toss up between, obviously, Drive My Car and number two and what my eventual topic was. Um, but yeah, like, again, this is a movie that I think I will return to time and time again for me it's an instant kind of classic uh and ranks up there with some of my favorite films of all time uh but i also do recognize that i have recent i'm prone to recency bias and i only very recently caught drive my car so looking at the entire year the film that has stayed on my mind the longest took my number one in the end 
Yes, yes. Uh, okay, my number two is another film that we've already talked about on a previous mm-hmm. episode of Behold. It's called Kovadis Ada. Mm-hmm. It is the harrowing story of a UN translator yeah. frantically trying to save her family during the 1995 Bosnian genocide. Mm-hmm. It is one of the best films of 2021, but it is not an easy watch. This no, is an no. absolutely devastating first-person retelling of an unimaginable atrocity that truthfully depicts the indifference, the incompetence, and the importance of the UN as culpable in the massacre of thousands of Bosnian Muslims. Uh, Writer-director Jasmila Zibanik frames Kovadis Ada like an intense thriller, uh, and he unpacks the human cost of horrifying cruelty and tragedy uh, through a lightly fictionalized account of what went on there. So yeah, go check out Kovadis Ada on VOD if you can. What's your number one? My number one is The Father. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. there's there's no real way to kind of like compare like The Father and Drive My Car, two totally kind of different monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think The Father stands out as a more unique film in that it is perhaps the pinnacle of one man's pursuit of acting as a craft, in mm. my opinion, right? Uh, Anthony Hopkins is phenomenal. Olivia Coleman is at the top of her game. Yeah. Uh, and it is not, I don't know if I would rewatch The Father necessarily as many times as I would rewatch Drive My Car, right? But, yeah. but I've had The Father on my mind since we watched it early, mm-hmm. early this year. Um, I think it was in February. And for that to kind of like still be on my mind and still be impactful and still remember very, very clearly you know, like different scenes within the film and just like how it made me feel. Um, there's a staying power there. Uh, and it's something that I don't think will be soon toppled anytime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's placed within the film more, I think. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 100% agree with that. That is my true number one of the year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, in an effort to not conflict with Isa, I picked another number one. Yeah. Uh, another film that I greatly love and you know is uh, just as good as any of the films that I've mentioned uh, is Rocks. Rocks is a British uh, coming-of-age story that mm-hmm. follows a Nigerian teen named Shola Omotoso. Uh, one day, she's living a normal life, hanging out with friends in secondary school. And the next, she's forced to become the sole breadwinner and caretaker of her younger brother mm. after her mother abandons them. It is faultlessly authentic and exuberantly naturalistic thanks to the improvised dialogue from its amazing cast of non-professional actors. Uh, Rocks is both a radiant celebration of youth and friendship as well as a painful drama about what happens when deprivation forces kids to grow up before they're ready. Yeah. Uh, I loved Rocks. You know, it's in my top mm-hmm. five, but mm-hmm. it's not my real number one. Like, but for, yeah. for this instance, it's my number one. Uh, any honorable mentions that you want to shout out before we cap it off here? Oh, man. Yeah, I think I think Minari was a close uh, honorable mention. Again, we've already got an episode of Behold where we talk about Minari and why we love it. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I think a couple, like Shiva Baby was really, really kind of close, uh, but mm-hmm. it had to be kind of edged out. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't watched Flea. Uh, yep. Rocks Collective and Kovadis Ida definitely are somewhere up there in my top 20. Mm. Um, yeah, but again, like un- unlike you, for me, it's more like a, a, for, uh, a amorphous list that exists within my head rather than an actual <laughs> right, list right, right. That, that gets published. Um, yep. So like, uh, yeah, there are plenty of stuff that I think we've covered this year in particular 
that have been really, really good in just um, the midst of the film. And again, right, I don't have as much uh, comparison as you do uh, when it comes to like the amount of films that you watch per year and therefore are able to rank. Uh, for me, it's a lot about ranking the stuff that either recommendations for you or we've got together largely that mm-hmm. that form my list. Uh, yep. Um, some honorable mentions for me. Um, this is one film that is tough to talk about because it won't premiere on Netflix until December 31st. Oh, mm. uh, the very last day that it can premiere. Yeah. Uh, but it's called The Lost Daughter. Uh, it stars Olivia Coleman once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she turns in another phenomenal performance. Uh, she plays a woman who finds herself becoming obsessed with another woman and her daughter while on summer holiday, mm-hmm. uh, prompting memories of her own early early motherhood to come back and unravel her. It is based on a novel by Elena Ferrante, uh, who also did My Brilliant Friends, if you, if you recall. Mm-hmm. So The Lost Daughter has uh, similarities to the My Brilliant Friend in that way, uh, in that it is a haunting psychological drama about sexuality, female friendships, female relationships, motherhood. Uh, and a woman struggle to carve a professional space outside of it. Mm. Uh, this is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal, Ooh. who crafts an unflinching character study here, built on buried shame, and it will leave viewers shaken. Uh, it makes my top ten of the year. Yeah. Um. Another that I want to point out is a couple of nonfiction entries. Uh, I wanna, okay. I want to shout out introducing Selma Blair, uh, which is a deeply intimate and raw portrait of the actress. Selma Blair, huh. after she was diagnosed with uh, multiple scleroliosis, MS, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and she's trying to make this valiant, risky effort to try to slow the progression of the disease. The disease. Um, mm. It's a remarkably moving portrait of a woman who's forced to reevaluate her relationships and her sense of self mm-hmm. in the face of a chronic illness that leaves her unable to sometimes speak or control her movements. Uh, the director, Rachel Flight, does an exceptional job at capturing everything with a compassionate lens. Uh, and it offers an unvarnished look at some of Blair's experiences in a way that will educate many viewers on the effects of MS. Mm. Um, also, would love to shout out Minari also, which I haven't mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but finally, my other shout out for non-fiction. This is uh, Gunda, which is... Uh. Experiential cinema in its purest form. Uh, Gunda chronicles the unfiltered lives of a mother pig, a flock of chickens, <laughs> and a herd of cows <laughs> with masterful intimacy, no voiceover, no structure, no dialogue. Yeah. It's, it uses this stark, transcendent black and white cinematography uh, and the farm's you know, ambient soundtrack. You know, there's no music either. It's just the, the ambient soundtrack of the farm. Yeah. Uh, and Victor Kosolowski uh, kind of invites the audience to slow down and experience life as his subjects do, taking in their world with you know this kind of almost mesmeric, magical patience, mm-hmm. uh, and it offers you this otherworldly perspective. Gunda asks us to meditate on the mystery of animal consciousness and reckon with the role that humans play in it. Yeah. It is a thoroughly pictorial experience, an experiential experience that I guarantee you 99% of the people listening to this would not like. Mm. <laughs> but I love it. It's just yeah. one of the most interesting films <laughs> I've, I've seen this year. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm yeah. super curious about Gunda. I haven't had the chance to check it out yet, but definitely on my list of things to try and wrap up the year with. Yeah, yeah. I did not expect to love Gunda as much as I did. <laughs> Uh, oh, also, okay, last shout-out for non-fiction. A yep. lot of great documentaries this year. I want to shout-out something that's in the projector right now. It's called The Rescue. 
Mm, uh, the, yes. the Rescue is a non-fiction film that focuses on the against-all-odds story that transfixed the world in 2018, which is the daring rescue of 12 boys and their coach from deep inside a flooded cave in Northern Thailand. Mm-hmm. If you recall, even Elon Musk tried to get in on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by three solo filmmakers, uh, Elizabeth Vasahi and Jimmy Chin, uh, and they shoot this documentary like a thriller. Oh, it combines yeah. actual footage shot during the rescue with recreations featuring the actual divers it blends the footage together to the point where I can't tell what is a recreation and what is the real footage and it creates this whole immersive cinematic experience it's a breathtaking nail-biting chronicle of something that seems like a truly impossible mission Mm -hmm. that united the world Uh, these two guys uh, this guy and girl the three solo filmmakers who did the rescue some of the best non-fiction filmmakers working today in terms of crafting, you know, just edge of your seat, oh, white yeah. knuckle suspense. Mm-hmm. This is another one you should check out. Uh, and if you haven't seen Free Solo, also go go check that out in uh, Disney Plus too, which is a great film. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Uh, man, um, any last honorable mentions before we uh, cap oh, off? Oh man, uh, I, I think we've covered quite a fair bit of it. Um, cool. Yeah, but you have a much more comprehensive list, don't you? Uh, yes, I do. For people to read. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, you can go to Potwire to check out my top 40 films of the year, mm-hmm. top 40 TV shows of the year, and my 13 favorite books of the year, uh, which I posted on the John Equality Channel Facebook yeah. page, uh, of which, you know, um, The Great Circle is my number one. So uh, go read that if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, my top 40 is just too many to list right now, but yeah. I think we've covered a, a, a good chunk of that. Mm-hmm. We'll be back, though, in two weeks' time to cover... Um, a lot of big uh, geek stuff as genre equality returns for its 49th episode. We have yeah. Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm-hmm. We got Hawkeye. Uh, a Gretzuko is coming back. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a series on HBO Max that pissed me off so much because <laughs> I had to... It's called Station Eleven. Um, it's so great that I had to... After I published it, redo and restructure my entire Top 40 list to put Station Eleven somewhere close to the top. Mm-hmm. It made me so angry. Never have I been so angry to watch something so good. And yeah. I'll talk about it yeah. <laughs> later on. Uh, plus, we'll talk about the, the star-studded Adam McKay movie, Don't Look Up, a mm-hmm. Singaporean film called 24 by Royston Tan. Mm-hmm. The Matrix is back with The Matrix Resurrections. Isa F will be covering The Witcher and The Wheel yeah. of Time uh, solo uh, because I just don't like The Wheel of Time and The Witcher uh, didn't catch my fancy in season one so you know yeah. he'll be yeah. uh, covering I'll, that. I'm excited to cover Witcher not so much The Wheel of Time so we'll see how far I get with that okay guys? Yeah but you see like at least a couple of episodes right to yeah. give, uh, give a take. Yeah I, 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 will, I will definitely weigh in for sure but yeah okay. don't expect something comprehensive because it's not there will be a big uh, South Korean sci-fi drama called The Silent Sea coming out on Christmas Eve, which I haven't seen, mm-hmm. but it looks fun. Uh, plus, I'll be talking about the new film from the director of The Shutter called The Medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't know that it's a ghost story, I don't know what you're thinking about because, of course, the director of Shutter Sh- will do a ghost yeah. story called The Medium. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, I'm going to say... Last minute addition to to our rundown here. I'm uh, gonna say R.I.P. to Anne Rice, which was one of my the most formative offers of my childhood. Mm. Uh, recently passed away. I think just this week at the age of eighty due to a stroke. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I'll be breaking down her bibliography, what to read, what to not read, what was best from her Vampire Chronicles mm-hmm. and Mayfair Witches, you know, um, shared series of novels. Yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll delve right into that. Uh, have you ever read any Anne Rice, by the way? Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, let's see. 
one or two maybe interview with the vampire is the only one I definitely have wa- uh, have read I think I also read Queen of the Dam other than that I didn't watch and I didn't read anything else Ah, mm. you read book one and book three without book two? Yeah, exactly. Because it was tied in with the... I, I picked up the movies that I had watched most recently. Like, I picked ah. up the books after I watched the movies, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You kind of miss a lot of context for Queen of them without Lestat's yeah. perspective. It was one of Lestat's those things where yeah. I think I walked into a library after watching Queen of the, the Dam. Yep. Yeah, the movie. And I was just like, oh, Queen of the Dam. Like, I didn't even think about it and then I picked it up and I was very, very lost. Uh, but outside of that, I am not at all familiar with Enrise stuff. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, I can break it down. Um, awesome. it's, it's, it's especially crushing to hear about Enrise um, passing because like, I'm currently in the middle of rereading her books uh, from the first interview of the vampire to the latest. Yeah. Uh, and then in the middle there, there is the Mayfair Witches trilogy which crosses over into the vampire books. So mm-hmm. I was like nine books deep and then, oh, you know, man. and then like she passed away. I still have like yeah. 11 more books to go. So I still have a, a long journey ahead of me yeah. and I'm excited to finish it. Although I hear that her later books are not great, but... Didn't you read one of the latest books like last year or something like that? Yeah, it's a book called The Prince, uh, Prince the Start and it's about Atlantis. It was fucking uh, yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I vaguely uh, remember that. Yeah, there were Atlanteans, there were aliens... <laughs> It was not the Vampire Chronicles, I remember. But in fairness, I did mention that I read that book uh, much like you read Queen of the Dam, like without context. Like mm. there were nine books prior to that, that which I hadn't read. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, the world building done there is what I missed. You know what I mean? Like if, imagine if you watched like Iron Man and then you watch Endgame and then you're like, the fuck? Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That is the perfect an- analogy for it. So yes, I'm I'm looking forward to this breakdown. Um, yeah, and in just like in in memory of her work, for sure. Yeah, uh, definitely, man. Uh, and remember to check out like all my stuff on Popwire. Uh, I also have a list of best Asian films and TV shows on NME coming out next. Yep. week. So check yep. that out. So I'll be posting um, that on um the Facebook page as yeah. usual. Uh, as we kind of wrap up the year, uh, we're not gonna make any like formal announcements for it yet, but we will be trying to consolidate. Um, all the kind of links and everything like outside of the, the Facebook page if you guys follow us on Facebook um, just mm. for kind of easy access if you want like um, to be able to read all of Hidzia's uh, articles uh, we'll be consolidating uh, the general media that we, we discuss slash write slash put out um, so that it's all in one place and you guys can access that um, in the new year so for now you can stay tuned uh, and, and wait for that Awesome. Uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Isa, I'll see you tomorrow when we watch Spider-Man No Way Home. Oh, yes. Uh, till I'm, next time. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah, <laughs> excited. Uh, this is Hit Zero. This is Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.